Our scripture reading is Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Please pray with me. Father, please open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. Write all these words on our hearts, we beseech thee. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. So this past week, I got to hear a few stories from Patty and David about their recent travels in Europe, uh, which they'll have to tell you about themselves. Um, it made me think about my time studying abroad and the, the reverse culture shock I experienced. I wonder if you studied abroad during college or, um, or high school or spent time studying outside of the US. They say reverse culture shock is the feeling of returning home from another culture and discovering you don't fit in the way you, you used to. Um, maybe your perspective has changed. You grew to appreciate a way of life and the habits you acclimated to in another culture. Maybe the new you doesn't fit into the old mold. I found myself working through those feelings of surprise and loss and disorientation and confusion. They, they helped me to develop a new, new eyes for the world. Um, I remember after returning from Scotland, spending all that time in an academic environment, I got um, into the habit of tucking my shirt in, uh, parting my hair, and wearing dress shoes. Um, I went over, can you hear me okay? Sorry, it's a little ill-fitting this morning. Um, so I, 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 I got into the, the habit of wearing academic garb, and so I went over with a suitcase of clothes and, and really slimmed down my entire wardrobe to only clothes that would fit an academic setting. And then I returned to the United States and started a job as a crisis counselor. My, my new eyes came as I discovered that, that playing professor dress up uh, can give the impression that you're snobbish and that you've never cried in your life. And maybe the only time you have cried was when you sold Bitcoin at the wrong time and lost some of your money. I made a conscious choice to, to ad adapt, um, but I certainly developed a deeper knowledge about dress codes in different environments and would like to think that the process of reverse culture shock and reacclimation gave me the flexibility of new eyes. I wonder if you can relate to this sense of developing new eyes, which is to say learning to see the world differently. Um, I remember a college president uh, talking about how having a disabled child opened his eyes to a segment of the population to which he had been blind before. Um, sometimes things change us and they give us a new perspective, new eyes. So we've been talking about the four P's of evangelism. Pray, prepare, places, people. Last week we said that evangelism 
is first and foremost God's work. Um, and so evangelism begins with prayer, um, prayer for opportunities, prayer for the lost, praying to make us willing. Um, in terms of, of preparation, surely walking with Jesus and seeing what he sees should help us to see the task of preparation differently, give us new eyes for the task. Our passage today is in Matthew 9. Um, it's the preface to the sending of the 12 in chapter 10. Sending the 12 out to the lost sheep of Israel, um, to, out to do evangelistic work, the missionary work. As a preface, we can see that Jesus's observations spark his commissioning. They lie at the foundation of his sending. Truly, they undergird the whole evangelistic enterprise. Our, our call to follow the disciples in chapter 10 stem from this. We see a summary of Jesus's ministry right at the beginning of our passage in, in verse 35, and I'll read it, um, but you can read along with me too if you have your Bibles open in front of you. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And then we see a pivot in the next verse. So let's slow down considerably um, as we read the next part, uh, the next verse in parts. So verse 36 begins this way, when he saw the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, there's enough in this one little clause to slow down and pause. Jesus saw. The Greek verb here, orao, can simply mean to see with the eyes, but more often it can mean to see with the mind, to perceive, as in to really see, to notice, even to stare at. Behold, a book I've enjoyed called The Alchemist um, has a lesson in it about the importance of really seeing. There was once a boy, the, the story tells this story, um, there was once a boy who wanted to learn about the secret of happiness from the wisest man in the whole world. And so he wandered far from home long before cars and trains and planes were invented for 40 days through, through the desert until he came upon a beautiful castle set upon a mountaintop where the wise man lived. Then the boy entered, but instead of finding a serene environment, a saintly man and a quiet scene, he walked in on a party, a hive of activity, traders coming and going, people mixing in cocktail attire, a small orchestra playing, the most delicious food. Everyone wanted this wise man's attention. So the boy had to wait for two hours just to speak with him. But even still, the wise man didn't have time to explain the secret of happiness on this occasion. And so he suggested to the boy to look around the palace and return in two hours. Meanwhile, he said, I want to ask you to do something. He gave the boy a teaspoon that had two drops of oil on it. As you wander around, carry this spoon and, without, and, and don't allow any of the oil to spill. So after two hours of carefully watching each step he took, he returned to that room with the man. And the man asked him, well, did you see the Persian tapestries that are hanging in my dining hall? Did you see the garden that it took a master gardener 10 years to cr create? Did you notice the beautiful parchments in the library? No, the boy had observed nothing. Orao nada. His only concern had been to not spill the oil. And so the man told him, go back and observe the marvels of my world. This time the boy really explored. He saw all the art on the ceilings and the wall. Um, he saw the gardens. He saw the mountains around him and the care 
with which everything had been selected. And when he returned, the boy related everything in detail to the man. But where are the drops of oil I entrusted to you? Asked this wise man. Looking down at the spoon, he, he saw that the oil was gone. Well, there's one piece of advice I'll, I can give you. He said, the secret of happiness is to see the marvels of the world and never forget the drops of oil on your spoon. So, of course, the point of this story is perhaps to illustrate the tension of happiness, the tension between giving and taking, work and leisure, looking up and looking down. What I like about this story is how difficult it is to find the balance. I think especially in a cold climate culture with a heavy emphasis on work and money and reputation, we can tend to look down a lot at the two drops of oil on our spoon. As a culture, we have learned not to look up, to truly see people. Driving up to the intersections like Market Basket on Endicott Street, we have been programmed not to make eye contact with the people holding cardboard signs. Same when walking through the commons in, in Boston. But Jesus saw the crowds. He really saw them. He noticed. Do you have the eyes of Christ? When, when Jesus heals the man born blind, mixing mud in his eyes, he asks him, do you see anything? I see people who look like trees walking around, but Jesus puts his hands on the man's eye and then his eyes are open and his sight's restored and he sees everything clearly. In seeing, there were stages of healing and maybe so too there are stages of really seeing. Do you see anything? Do you now see everything? If you spend enough time with Jesus, we are really going to see people. Seeing is how Jesus prepares us to go out. Let's read a little further. In verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Compassion literally means to suffer together. Earlier this week, something at work reminded me of a lesson about compassion that I learned during college. Um, throughout college, I was part of a student ministry that brought uh, soup into the Boston Commons each Saturday during the semester. It was never really about just giving soup and, and, and handouts. Um, it was about developing relationships with homeless individuals. Um, some people would come and just grab uh, soup and coffee and go, but other people would stay and chat for the, the, the entire time we were there, um, sometimes two hours. During those years, I think I developed eyes for the people we worked with. I learned stories about them sleeping under bridges, having too few public restrooms in Boston, um, too few shelter beds, violence in the streets at night. And I learned the stories of how people became homeless in the first place. Um, we, we were meeting people by entering into their lives on their terms. Now, one of these people, um, I'm, I'm gonna call him Bobby. He was a middle-aged man who was really outgoing. Um, and he often texted or emailed the homeless ministry group leaders to see how we were doing during the week or the summers or Christmas break. Um, I mean, he'd acquired a, a housing voucher, so he wasn't strictly homeless, uh, but still he identified with and was friends with the homeless population. Um, so a few of us, we came back from college early from Christmas break our sophomore year, and we thought it would be fun to head into the city to grab pizza around dinner time, maybe around seven. And we invited Bobby to join us and offered to pay, essentially inviting him into our world on our terms. Um, the dinner was nice, but 
As it got later, we noticed he became a little vague and spacey, uh, where today I suspect his medications were wearing off. Um, we left the restaurant a little early, walked to our car, and Bobby sat in the passenger seat, uh, but he wasn't able to direct us to his house. And that wasn't because he was homeless. Um, his phone battery had died. We knew he lived in, in Revere from earlier conversations, and so we drove in that direction, and we circled the blocks a few times near where he thought he might live. Um, and, and in slurred speech, he, he told us to drop him off at a tea stop and he could find his way home. Um, so after a little longer, a little, little bit of protest on our part, we, we did drop him off. Um, and we emailed him and learned that he did get back safely. But, but let me tell you, that was a real lesson in seeing, a real lesson in compassion. I think becoming responsible for someone, someone's safe passage when they're in, in a vulnerable state home, I couldn't help but truly see a little better in that moment, his story of homelessness was wrapped up in his own story of mental illness. Um, seeing in this case was the seedbed for compassion for me. Um, it takes compassion to, to enter into someone else's life where there aren't quick fixes um, for, for weakness and vulnerability and loneliness and, and, and brokenness. I mean, that being said, I, I, I don't think that another pizza night would be a, a wise and responsible thing, um, but we did stay in his life. Um, you know, I think in our culture, as busy people, and we hope, re who lead re we hope relevant lives, oftentimes we want to make real contributions to know what we do really matters. Well, compassion necessarily cuts against this focus on outcome, this inwardly tuned uh, focus on the value of our own time. Instead, it asks us to just join hands with people in a desire to be helpful or at least present. And compassion means sitting with someone when there are no words. It means crying because now we know someone else's grief. It means letting a sigh of distress arise straight from the heart. Evangelism begins from a place of really seeing, allowing ourselves to feel compassion guilt and pressure, hellfire insurance and fear, these aren't the foundation on which we're sent. The pivot point in the gospel story comes in this moment of noticing, a moment of compassion. What did Jesus see? Why does he have compassion? I mean, let's read on, verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. I mean, these people were harassed and helpless. This first term here, harassed, means to be vexed or annoyed. The second term, helpless, means actually to be hurled down, to, to be cast down. It's not helpless like our culture understands, so not, not just meaning depressed, like helpless and hopeless, um, but it, it means being thrown down. Um, it's the same word the Greek Old Testament uses for what Moses did to the Ten Commandments when he came down and saw that there was a golden calf that had been erected. This crowd is not seeing the best years of their life. Um, you know, maybe I'm biased because I spend so much time doing crisis counseling, seeing people on the worst days of their life. But I don't think these crowds that Jesus was seeing are too different from the people living across the hall in our apartments or our next door neighbors. I mean, no one's life is functional. Everyone's just people. <laughs> Everyone's got a story that will break your heart if you really listen to it. Um, I, Augustine famously wrote this. He wrote, oh Lord, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. 
This describes life as a sheep without a shepherd. Restless. Seeing what Jesus sees, knowing what he knows, being moved as he is, Jesus lays the foundation for, for the, the, the commissioning, for the sending. He says this in verses 37 and 38. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Our word today for evangelism is prepare. And here's the really interesting thing. In Jesus' assessment of the situation in his own day, he said everything's already been prepared. He uses the word harvest, which is to say everything's ready, the time is now. The soil's been tilled, the seeds have been sown, the crop has grown, all that work's been done already. Jesus didn't believe that his culture wasn't ready for the gospel. He knows that evangelism is first and foremost the work of God, who is the Lord of the harvest. You know, God is already at work in the lives of those around us that, that he wants to use us to, to bring into the kingdom. He wants to send us, not just for the burdensome part, uh, but for the joyful part, the reaping of the harvest. I mean, a lot of us can get down on the state of the culture as decidedly not Christian or post-Christian, unchurched. We, we can make the assumption that people know God's offer and have rejected it. We can also make the assumption that people's rejection of God's offer is a fixed position that results from having weighed all options. You know, a lot of times beliefs in God are, are caught rather than taught. Some people might say, well, I really didn't go to church growing up. Okay, I mean, that's not a closed door. I mean, some people might say in my culture, people pray to Allah, but I've fallen out of that practice. Wow, thanks for being honest. It's my belief that Jesus is the world's greatest hope. <laughs> There's, in this world, there is work to be done. People need to hear the gospel translated. But when we're talking about preparation, that heart preparation work is in good hands. If we can affirm with Augustine that God made us for himself and that our hearts are restless until they find rest in God, then really we're saying that God is doing the prep work. People know there's something missing and there's inner restlessness. It's a good thing. They, they have it. Why? Because there truly is no answer for inner restlessness except that which comes from the finished work of Christ. And that he's done what we can't do for ourselves. I mean, Ecclesiastes talks about God placing eternity in the hearts of, of people. I mean, God did that because without that seed, there would be no harvest. In, in, in Christ dying and rising, he invites us to share in his life, to put away our old identities and to put on an identity as a child of God. There is no answer to the guilt of sin, no answer to the hamster wheel of legalistic striving, no answer to the rage against self, neighbor, and world, no answer except in Jesus's invitation to come to the cross and see the price of just mercy. Then come to the empty tomb and see the hope of life in Christ, a life which defies the grave. God made us for himself, and, and, and then our hearts are restless until they rest in God is a good thing. It is the foundation on which we go out. 
But when we find God, when we come to rest on him, this, this, this is a gift um, that we can only know when we turn to Jesus. Coming to God is coming out of a place of wandering into a place of being led by the good shepherd. It's not always easy, but it is truly good. Every time, in every circumstance, and for everyone, Christ is the greatest hope, both now and into eternity. Several years ago, it was estimated that, that in the U.S., there are as many as 190 million non-Christians, which would equal the fifth largest mission field in the world. The fifth largest is where we are. Jesus calls that a harvest, which is to say that God has been working in the background. Our text is the preface to such a call for mission, which asks us, if we are really seeing, are we really noticing with the eyes of Christ? Do we see with compassion that outside of God's fold, people are like sheep without a shepherd? Their hearts are restless. The mission that we've been given is to be harvesters and to pray that God would send out more harvesters. Seeing is how God prepares us to go out. With compassion is how he wants us to go out. And now, is when he wants us to go out. Look up, people of God. There is a harvest that God has prepared. So go out and bring in the harvest. Look up, lead with compassion. There's no cure for a restlessness of God's own design except God himself. God did not make us to be our own salvation. You know, we can become so afraid when it comes to evangelism. And so we can keep our eyes so fixed on those two drops of oil on our spoons. But God says, look up. Evangelism is my work. So pray first and prepare by seeing as I see. I'll say that again. Pray first and prepare by seeing as I see. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have called us to be sheep in your fold and that you are a good shepherd. I pray that you would open our eyes to see our friends, family, neighbors, the way you see them with hearts of compassion um, and recognizing that the gospel is good news. I thank you that you call us to share our faith and that to find faith is actually the greatest gift we can give to someone. So I pray that you would stir us to see as you see. In Christ's name we pray, amen.